I remember teaching in Mark O'Connor camp the first year. I taught, for, taught at his camp for maybe 15 years. And uh, I came home uh, really kind of moved by the whole thing. And it was the first time I'd ever taught at a camp that encompassed a lot of different styles. And uh, I remember my, my wife Audrey said to me, um, she said, something happened to you. And I knew, I said, well, what do you think? She said, well, you used to love playing the fiddle. She said, now you seem to be in love with the violin. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh. Bruce Molsky is a marvelous old-time fiddler and balladeer. He also plays the guitar and banjo with great skill, and is a highly sought-after teacher of music. I've known Bruce for many years, and I caught up with him for this interview when he came to my hometown of Olympia, Washington in 2016 to perform at the Ole Old Time Music Festival. I'm Bruce Molsky. I play the fiddle and the banjo and the guitar, and I sing, and I love music. And uh, I grew up in the Bronx, New York. Uh, and um, What year were you born? In 1955. I was born in a little hospital in Manhattan called New York Infirmary, kind of like St. James Infirmary, but it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> but uh, I don't come from a musical family. Um, I found out recently I have a very distant part of my family that uh, from Brazil that I didn't even know about. And there are more musicians there than we knew about growing up. Where did the Molskis come from on your family? Molsky is, is a, it's a Russian name. It's shortened twice. It was Ostromogilsky. And when my grandfather and his brother came over in the 19-teens, they shortened it to Ostromolsky. And then sometime later, not too, not too far later, they decided that was too long, so they decided they'd shorten it again, but they couldn't agree on what to shorten it to. So my great-uncle took Ostro, and my grandfather took Malski. And that's where Malski comes from. So is it a Jewish family? It's a Jewish family. We, were, we, were, uh, we left Eastern Europe because of the pogroms. We were chased out. And, uh, and most of us ended up in the, in, in the U.S. Some ended up in other places. Any any cantors in the family? Well, uh, I was you, you're going to say you asked if, 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 earlier if I had any kind of musical roots in the family. My my mother's grandfather, who I don't think ever came to this country, uh, was a cantor in the synagogue, and that would have been in Ukraine. Her family was from Odessa, and um, somebody tells me that I'm very very distantly related to Nathan Milstein, but I'm not you know, the famous classical violinist. But it's not a direct descendancy, and it may be by blood, and I'm afraid to even say it out loud because he's such an icon of classical violin playing. But we really, uh, I had a cousin, um, Joel Hirschhorn, who was quite successful writing music, and he wrote uh, for some of the Disney films. He wrote the, the Poseidon Adventure music and Elliot the Dragon and uh, and he he's he was a he died a few years ago. He was a really interesting guy. Lived in L.A. for years, and he and his partner wrote a a song that became an overnight success. It was the last thing they wrote one night before they called it a night because they just couldn't think of anything to do. And they wrote this song that got covered by a singer named Maureen McGovern, and it was called "The Morning After," and it was big on AM radio, FM radio, I guess, for a long time, and it. It floated my cousin Joel's boat for a very long time. <laughs> and you knew him as a kid? Well, he was my first cousin, you know. Uh, so did you ever go out to L.A. when he was... Uh, well, when that? That, was, that came later. When I was growing up, he was still living in the Bronx. He was uh, the son of my, of my mother's sister. And we all... I mean, he was, my, he was older than me. He was the oldest of the cousins, and I'm the youngest. So there would have been about 16 years between us. But I remember him being a teenager when I was a little boy, and, you know. So when, when did the fiddle happen? What, take me right there well, to that moment. Um, the fiddle and the banjo kind of happened at the same time. I already played guitar. Guitar was my first kind of putting my toe in the water. But, but, uh, and I played that for, from the time I was 11 till I was about 17. 
and uh, and I became acquainted with old time country music and bluegrass and blue. I played blues guitar. I'm mostly a finger style player, but um, I started going to the folk music jams at Johnny's Big Red Grill, which was a, a restaurant right outside the gate, the Cornell University gates. I, was, I went to Cornell for two years, and uh, all these kind of folkies with folk instruments showed up several nights a week. And they just jammed, you know, songs, dance tunes, folk songs, song, you know, it was, it was 1972 or three. So it was the kind of the end of the folk revival and we were still singing a lot of that stuff. And I just, uh, I became enamored with the banjo. And one of the first people I saw play, like in the flesh right next to me was Howie Burson. And how he's a, a great kind of, I guess you'd call New England Northern style player, and he played things like Staten Island Hornpipe, and uh, and he's still on the scene. I still know him. He's great. He's a vintner. Still plays the banjo, and uh, so I played banjo for a few months, and sometime in that few months, I heard a, a an LP on County Records. County is one of the labels that put put out a lot of old time music, and uh, one very small thing run by a really dedicated guy named Dave Freeman, also still on the scene. And uh, there was a, a compilation of Southern banjo players called Clawhammer Banjo Volume 1, I think was the one I had. There were two volumes. And I heard that, and I heard there was a recording of Fred Cochran playing, I think, the tune Roust about. And I just went nuts. And I can't, you know, I can't even say why. I have no kind of cultural or linguistic kind of thing that would, a light that would come out of my head. But I just loved it. It was so bluesy and syncopated and rhythmic and strong. And uh, I just kind of, what what little banjo I played at that point, I just kind of threw it out the window and, and decided I wanted to play this Southern music. And I just kind of started to dig into it. And right around that time, there there was a pretty strong scene for kind of, old-time music in general in, in Ithaca, New York at that time. And I fell in with some, some people and started to play some music. I've heard, you know, guitar and this and that. Um, but I also went to, this is the long version, but uh, I went to work on a dairy farm that summer as penance for having not done so well in school. I went to the extension service and I said, can you place me on a farm this summer? I just need to work. I just need to do something. It's my personal foreign legion, you know. <laughs> and so I went to work on a dairy farm for 14 hours a day, milking cows and putting hay up, and and uh, it was totally a foreign object to me. I mean, I grew up in the city, you know, but it was it was good. And, but I had my sister's uh, high school band instrument, her fiddle, which I her violin, which I don't even know how I got it. But every night after the second milking, I would go out of earshot, and I spent the whole summer teaching myself one tune. And I just, I didn't, I'm self-taught. I mean, I, I didn't have any lessons. And, and by the end of the summer, I could play one tune. It was Farewell to Whiskey. It was an Irish tune. And I could just play the melody. And the end of that summer, I went to the, I caravan with a bunch of pals, and we went to the Galax Fiddlers Convention for the first time, for me. That was 1974. Tell people what, what Galax is. Galax is... It's a city, it's a very small city in, in Grayson County, Virginia, right in the Blue Ridge Mountains. They uh, have been running a old-time fiddle contest. We call them fiddlers conventions, but they're they're contests and they're just community contests. They're not uh, they're they're more social than anything else, although they can get quite competitive. But the one in Galax has been going on. Oh my gosh, it's got to be. 75 or 80 years now, I'm just guessing. It's an institution. And it was a real kind of uh, epicenter of the universe for a lot of us in the summertime. A lot of us, I'm not the only northern transplant kind of kid that was attracted to southern culture and southern music, you know. And Grayson County is where this style of music that you heard on this LP, right? The claw hammer, is that kind of well, from that area? Actually, close. Grayson County is on one side of the Blue Ridge, and Surrey County, North Carolina, and Stokes County are on the other. And even though they're geographically close to each other, the music is different. Some there's some overlap in the, in the repertoire, but but the kind of local style is different. My 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 
first kind of banjo hero after Fred Cochran was was uh, Wade Ward, and Wade Ward was from Grayson County, where Fred Cochran was from from uh, North Carolina side, and they played really differently, really differently. Did you ever meet Albert Hash? I spent time with Albert Hash. I did. Yeah, tell um, tell a little bit about who he was. Well, Albert was um, from Southwest Virginia, from a place from near White Top Mountain, um, the very very southwestern corner of the state, and he. Um, he was a, a, you know, old local fiddler who um, he worked actually as a machinist in Washington D.C. for many years. But when I lived in Lexington, Virginia, which is a place I escaped to a few years later, there was a banjo player named Odell McGuire, and Odell was he was a, a lettered, brilliant professor of geology at Washington Lee University. But he was also a banjo player and a country guy, and he would take us on these some of us local you know, yokels. He'd take us on, on these little uh, sojourns to visit musicians in the country, you know? And uh, he turned a lot of people onto the music. There are a lot of geologists out there who play the banjo because they <laughs> studied with Odell, you know? But uh, we, we went, a bunch of us went up to White Top to uh, Albert's. He lived in Mouth of Wilson, Virginia. And uh, we went up and I remember sitting knee to knee with Albert. He was a really nice guy. And, and he made uh, violins. He made violins, and his daughter, Audrey, continued making violins after Albert was gone. I'm not sure if she's doing it anymore. But I remember sitting just with our little packs of cigarettes on the floor and a cup of coffee and just playing knee-to-knee for several hours one day, and, and Albert was great. You know, he just, he was all about the music. He was one of these people who played for the joy of it. You know, he wasn't competitive he would he didn't need to slap you on the hand if you didn't do it right he just he just liked the music and uh, there's still a couple of recordings of him floating around Bobby Patterson who ran the runs I guess the heritage music uh, label put out a couple of CD or LP CDs LPs of uh, Albert years ago the White Top Mountain Band I'd like to hear Thornton and Emily Spencer playing uh, banjo and guitar and Albert on fiddle and uh, you can say they may be on CD. They're out there somewhere, and they're really worth a listen. Albert popularized quite a few tunes from the region. Uh, his version of Hangman's Reel, not to be confused with the Canadian Reel de Pondu, but uh, the Hangman's Reel is something we've all played forever. And Little Brown Hand and, and uh, Old Sport, those are Albert tunes, as far as we were concerned. So you're talking about Odell, and I'm thinking of the, uh, what was it, the White Column Inn? Yeah, that was the place. That's the place. I moved to Lexington, Virginia in 76, and the White Column was run by Odell's wife. It was ex-wife at that point, Maida McGuire. And Maida was like the the adopted mother of every young, you know, kind of lost soul musician that moved into Rockbridge County. And she was incredible. She gave us all place to crash and I worked for her in the restaurant for a long time but that's where the music happened every night talk about this just for a minute uh, not to the sense of lost souls and uh, <laughs> you know it, it, or, or urban refugees right because this was my experience too uh-huh. and, and you would bond with these other people from all over but that had found in this music and the tradition it's not just the music but it's the whole social History and and in fact, I, the word that has come to me recently, and I've thought a lot about this, is nobility. There's some hmm. fundamental noble quality to to what I experienced. Mine mostly was experienced in Central West Virginia with right. Melvin Wine and Lee Triplett and Ira Mullins back in the okay. day. No kidding. But again, um, I mean, these were simple rural people. Mm-hmm. I, I was a city, you know, sophisticated as it were. But there was a kind of this uh, nobility that came with the music, at least to my. You, you mean? Do you mean the nobility of the musicians who played it, or just yeah, the music nobility itself? This itself? Yeah, there yeah, was like something yeah. that uh, the spirit. Um, well, it was so important to these people. We were all moved by that. It was. I, I'm not sure I would use the word nobility, but uh, but there was a, a just a huge. Uh, music was just so important. It was so much part of the social fabric and and just the daily reality of of all these people the people you're talking about i know i i spent some time with tommy Jarrell 
when I was learning to play the fiddle and and uh, he would talk he would even in his 70s which is uh, he was in his early 70s when I met him when he talked about where a tune came from or about his you know, he learned from his dad about his daddy playing his eyes would light up it's just so important to him and uh, and it was sincere he wasn't he wasn't performing for me and, and I, I always that's I think maybe that's the kind of thing that you're talking about yeah, there. This was used to overcome. This was used to deal with a lot of difficulty in life. Yeah, and uh, there was something precious and try yeah. to cherish. And if you're, if you're a musician and you're, you know, the the act of playing instru an instrument is is a is a kind of spiritual place to go because it displaces every all the other bad stuff that's been banging around in your head all day long. When you play a tune, nothing else exists, especially if it's going well. And uh, I live for those moments, you know. And when you play with other musicians, it, it can be magnified that much more. It's when, you, when, the, when everybody's really together and really in the groove and playing outside of themselves and the music becomes one thing, which doesn't, you know, you're happy when that happens a few times in a night. That's magic. That's really, I live for that, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so you're this guy from the Bronx and we were talking about this sort of... Uh, uh, displaced people in a way. I, mm. I, I grew up in Patterson. I sometimes think of it that way, and, and not to insult the people who live in Patterson. My mother was born there and loved loved New Jersey. <laughs> but I got to a place where I didn't feel I could live in that environment. I mean, oh. even today, if I were to go back to try to live in northern New Jersey, I'd find it very difficult. Whatever value system is, is so dominant there, uh -huh. the way money and commerce and the way things are done and maybe what's being done, in fact, even to the environment. Right. Is just so heartbreaking in a way to see the Passaic River is treated like you know what just yeah but I, I, you know sewer the, I mean the, they had the society hasn't been a whole lot kinder to, to rural places either well that's happened a lot in West Virginia now yeah. I don't know if I could live in Southern West Virginia where I lived for yeah. some years because they're taking the mountains down they're yeah, blowing they're just off cutting the them to strip mining they yeah. you know they're eating their own young and it's all this all for the sake of of uh, short-term profit, but I know that's not why we're here to talk today. But, uh, well, in a way, it is. I mean, we'll we'll get back to the the kind of your your narrative, but which I, I think is what I'm fascinated by is you know how does destiny lead us in certain <laughs> directions? But the question I find myself asking in this series and asking myself is, okay, you know, these things are going on, right? Mm -hmm. We're we're getting a lot of environmental destruction. We have climate change. We have these things that are really starting to push on us yeah. pretty hard. And uh, where does this music fit in? Where does this practice, and it is like a practice, yeah. uh, fit into addressing some of these needs? And I, I think they do, but I'm curious to how other people think about it. They address them in different ways. For the person playing it, it would be kind of as I described, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a mental refuge place, refuge point. But... Uh, as an expression, you can go back as far as you want in the history of music and find songs that were written to talk about social issues, controversial things. Uh, some of the songs are really funny. You remember, remember, we've got Franklin D. Roosevelt back again. There's <laughs> a donkey in the White House again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, just and I just finished the project uh, last year with a group called Anonymous Four. And it's um, music that was popular during the uh, during the American Civil War. The last year of the Civil War was 1865, and that's the name of the CD. And I was really excited and proud to work with them. But we put a lot of Marcia Janensky, who was the was the musical director in Anonymous Four for that project, and I spent quite a, a bit of time putting the program together. And it was meant to be music that represented what it was like to be to live through those awful times. You know, they called it the cruel war. And uh, that kind of music, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that Civil War music was, was sheet music. It was written by kind of music, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, music mills. I mean, companies in the cities, they just crank that stuff out. Almost like Tin, and it was, tin Pan Alley. Yeah, and it was, it was meant to appeal to people's emotions, but it still represented, uh, there's still something uh, true in it. And, and, I think, and uh, and so it it uh, expressed a lot of the uh, emotion 
that you can imagine people might have felt at that time and told the same kind of story, you know. There were, a lot of it was kind of theatrical and a lot of it had to do with daddy being killed in the war and his talking kind of after the fact about seeing his children in heaven and all this kind of stuff. There was a lot of religious kind of... Um, it, and I'm not, I'm not, a lot of brother, brothers fighting Brothers fighting against each other. The music on 1865 was meant to be, was not meant to be partisan in any way. And it was a, a conscious thing. We talk about, we describe the CD as music that was in the air. And uh, at a lot of those songs had interchangeable words and were sung on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line. Brother Green is a good example. The Dying Soldier. The, the Southern Foe Has Laid Me Low. There are versions where you hear the Northern Foe Has Laid Me Low. It was, you know, everybody was having a hard time. <laughs> so, so Anonymous Four, tell me who they are. And Anonymous Four is a, uh, is a quartet, obviously, of women that revitalized medieval chanting. They're classical singers, amazing classical singers, and they brought that whole genre, that whole time period of music up to a, uh, to a standard it had never had experienced before over a period of 30 years. Um, the project that I did with them, sadly, was their last. They broke up after that. Not because of me, but, <laughs> but, uh, but they ended after that. But, but they, uh, they're very famous for certain performances of, of chanting that I know I don't know much about that stuff at all. Well, this is one way of segue into something, of course, I think that you're noted for. So you were bringing your fiddle to this particular project. I brought fiddle, banjo, and guitar, and I sang with them. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you, I mean, you are, I think, becoming quite noted for your particular style of being able to play fiddle and sing mm. with the violin. Yeah. And you're, you're working with these women who are chanting. Right. And... Um, well, they weren't chanting on this project. We were singing the old Civil War yes, songs. Right. They have some, some folk-based projects, too. Okay, okay. Well, I guess I, I was going to explore that idea of this relationship and how you perceive it between the human voice and the violin itself. Since the project we're working on is about the violin yeah. as a medium, where do you want to go with that? Well, uh, I, I see certain instruments, you know, instruments that are capable of long tones, Bowed instruments, uh, flutes, things like that, have a lot, to me, of the same kind of characteristic as a human voice. A string on a violin has a certain pitch, but it also has overtones, and it has or we, what we would call timbre, and it has, uh, and it ha and it's moving. It's air that moves. You know, we we have to move air to make our vocal cords vibrate. And, and a violin, that's why you got F-holes in it, because the air has to move in and out and create the sound. And so a lot of those, uh, a lot of those characteristics, they kind of line up for me. And, 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 you know, a really great performance of, of fiddle, violin, especially when it's on a single string, sounds like singing. It really does. And I noticed, I mean, I heard people sing with the fiddle when I first started to play. And it just, I just thought, wow, that's really cool. I'd like to do that. And, and I, I kind of made a, I made a project out of myself, out of it for, for myself for all these years. And it's been a real, it's a discovery. A lot of it has to do with making the voice and the, and the fiddle kind of work together and resonate together. A lot of it is just the mechanics of singing notes in tune while operating the instrument. <laughs> so sometimes you know, you're playing harmony notes to your yeah. singing. And that's well, the, I harmonize a lot and uh, also playing rhythmic patterns while in one cadence while singing in another cadence. That's, to me, that's, I mean, one of the really difficult things to do. And I'm still, after doing this for 40-some years, I'm still, find, I'm still finding that there's lots of improvement to be made in that. So I, I'll pick a tune that really has kind of uh, uneven phrasing in the vocal and, and work on playing some other sort of regular metric rhythm, rhythm, rhythmic pattern against it just as an exercise for myself. And, you know, it really, it really bears down hard on our inability to think about two things at once. 
and uh, I, I'm just I'm always learning. It's just it's a, been a real journey. I love doing it. As you have progressed in this, have you found yourself looking? At some point, did you look for a different violin because you felt it would match your voice better? The violin that I played was my regular axe for 22 years. I originally picked it because it kind of it spoke to me, you know, and it was it was made by uh, Bruno Stefanini. He was the brother. He is, is the brother of Rafe Stefanini, who I uh, a great fiddler and banjo player who I've played with forever. Bruno lives and, uh, in Bologna. I Bruno believe. Bruno's from Bologna. He Italy. runs a violin shop there with his wife Katya. And uh, and way back in the early days, you know, well, 1991 or two, uh, Rafe hooked me up with a couple of violins. He had three violins of Bruno's, and I was looking for a, a good instrument. You know, this was a big deal. Bruno makes really fine instruments and. And Rafe laid three of them on a table. And I picked up the well, first one I picked up, I liked the color of it. I had no other. I picked it up and I, I played three notes on it. And I said, this is the one. He said, well, you haven't tried any of the others. I said, I know, but this is the one. And so I tried the others and I was right. It, was, it just spoke to me. And, and I, it turned out to be a really good one to sing with. And maybe I heard some of my own voice in it. I don't know. But I sang with that for years. And... Uh, I've owned a couple of other instruments along the way, but I, that was always my main one. I commissioned a new instrument last year and picked it up in May, and uh, it's a very it's very different from the Stefanini one, and I'm I'm it's become my kind of new voice. It's become you know I I mean I still play the Stefanini, but I, this one has really uh, been a different kind of trip for me. The, the Who's the maker? Maker is Ewan Thompson. He's from Shetland. And uh, he he's made violins for a lot of a lot of people that I've collaborated with, friends that I've made over there over the years, great players. Uh, Kevin Henderson plays one. Um, Chris Stout of the group Fiddler's Bid. These are all really A-level great players. And some other people, uh, Lois Nickel is another one. She plays with a group called Yalta Dance. They all shared this kind of quality that I really wanted in an instrument. It was a little bit, um, I, I don't want to use the word syrupy because it sounds negative, but a, a little bit sweeter, but still with kind of a bite and an edge. And of course, an Italian violin like the Stefanini has more of a, a focused kind of frequency range. It's a little, got more of a head cold and, uh, and brighter. So I picked this instrument up in May and, and uh, I had 15 days in the country I was touring and I decided I would just play the living daylights out of it because new fiddles change a lot in the first little while and uh, it just got better and better and I'm I just can't put it down now so that this is kind of the new object of my attention you know and did you talk to him about the making of it why his violin might have this character that the Italian violin doesn't does he uh, have that discussion I've asked him he's I mean, I, I think there's a little bit of voodoo in there, but his his he uses a, a certain uh, Guarneri body style. It's not Guarneri del Gesù, but another Guarneri from around that time period. Is the the construction is based on that? Maybe that's got something to do with it. I'm I I only play these things. I'm I'm completely lost when it comes to why something sounds the way it sounds or anything. What beyond setup? I, I don't know much. <laughs> Old-time music came from people who lived close to the land, and often their tunes mimicked the sounds they heard in the natural world. Let's listen to Bruce play and sing an old tune called Wolves A-Howling from his music CD, Lost Boy.
outside to and a holler They're gonna get you, bet you a dollar instruments my own well uh, fiddles I have uh, I have this view and Thompson fiddle and I have the the Bruno Stefanini fiddle I own a, a hardanger fiddle uh, made by a, a Norwegian maker Salve Hakadal and uh, and I have the first kind of real fiddle that I ever owned which I got from a, a violin dealer in uh, Midtown Manhattan when I was in my early 20s and uh, I worked in a tobacco shop on East 42nd Street, and he was a customer. And uh, and he sold me a, a hand, kind of a homemade, I don't want to say it's handmade, homemade West Virginia fiddle with a bow in a case for 275 bucks. And that was my real, that was my first real instrument. I've still got that. And then, uh, you know, I play guitar. I have several guitars. I have, uh, have an old a uh, 1920s Martin that was given to me by my great uncle, who was kind of a sideline music collector of sorts. He was a, a lawyer in Washington, D.C. who used to make trips to the mountains and visit singers and stuff. And he gave me a guitar. And I've got an old, another old Martin. And my road guitar is a Santa Cruz OM style that I bought in 97. I bought it new. And it's got a new, brand new replacement neck courtesy of United Airlines. If you've heard any of the horror stories about how airlines treat instruments, I can support them. You spent all this time, a fair amount of time, traveling to these different uh, fiddlers that yeah. were the tradition bearers back then. I mean, that's a mm -hmm. word we're using now, but these are the older generation, a generation that really didn't grow up on television. Right. And often didn't even learn their music over the radio from the Grand Ole Opry. This was really direct. Yeah. This came through the parents or mm -hmm. the neighbors. And uh, that might be the last of that generation because so much now is available to us. Well, it's so, it's so different now. I think about what my students have available to them compared to what we had. You know, and it changes the whole learning process. And and you, I think you could make the argument, but I'd be curious what you think of how often there has to be some limitation in the learning to often make it work in a, in a really fundamental way. If it's so easy, it's all available versus paying the dues to drive so far. Yeah. I mean, today, sometimes I'll want to look up something on research. Right. You just have to get in the car, go to the library, mm -hmm. you know, find it. And you'd say, well, now I just go online. And isn't that better? But sometimes you feel like, God, you know, you really thought about that information differently when you had to go find it. You process it differently. You know, I think if there's anything negative about it, having it so available on the Internet, it, it devalues it a little bit to people. It's like, oh, I've got to find that 1928 recording of Earl Johnson playing, you know, whatever, Mississippi Sawyers. And I go on uh, some website, and 15 seconds later, I'm listening to it, and I never got up out of my chair. And... That's great, but it doesn't feel the same as if I had had to call some music collector that I knew and say, hey, man, can you pull out that 78 that you had and, and make a cassette and send it to me because I really want to study some particular thing about this music. 
changes it. And and then going back earlier, where you as a young person was going really up the holler, as they say, mm-hmm. and developing relationships with people, because you can't just barge in and say, tell me that tune. You know, no. Oh, you I was to- terrible at that. I mean, I'm as far as field collecting or studying from old folks, or I'm I'm really not the person to talk to because I was far too shy and far too far too shy about invading people's kind of lives. And I would, whenever I went to visit old musicians, it was always with somebody else. You know, I wasn't like like Mike Seeger or Alice Gerard or anybody like that who really sought these people out sincerely and lovingly, but they were good at making those kind of connections. I was never any good at that. And uh, first wanted to say so. so but I loved it when I did, you know. So give me any memories of, of a couple times when something really did happen where you, you heard a tune from somebody or you had an opportunity and it really has stayed with you, that memory. Well, the first time I met Tommy Jarrell was, uh, was, was very big for me. And uh, I was tooling around with my friend Steve Roberts. He's a banjo player who was living in Mount Airy, North Carolina, North Carolina at that time near where Tommy lived. And he played with Tommy all the time. And he, Steve had to do some grocery shopping one day. And uh, and he said, well, let me drop you off at Tommy's house, and I'll you know you can meet Tommy, and I'll run some errands, and and so he dropped me off, and and uh, and left, and Tommy didn't have a phone. Um, Steve's car broke down, and I ended up spending the whole day, and uh, at that point, I'd probably been playing fiddle less than a year, but I could I could play you know a little bit, I could get through some tunes, and I. Sat with him in the living room, just playing tune after tune, and just talking. And he was very gracious about the fact this young guy had been dumped into his house for the day. But uh, but I that was the best fiddle lesson I ever had. That was uh, it, that talk about something that stuck with me. And and Tommy was you know you you were talking earlier about how important the music was to these old folks and what an important part of their lives. I mean, Tommy's son, B.F., uh, Benny, was a great fiddler, kind of a crossover old-time bluegrass fiddler, and he had made an LP with a band. And uh, I still remember in the middle of it, we'd been playing a while, Tommy stood up and and uh, he said, well, let me play B.F.'s uh, Florida Blues. And he had one of those old, just an old kind of compact LP phonograph, and he and he put on Florida Blues, and he was so proud of his son for playing fiddle like that. Benny was a great fiddler. Those are the kind of things that kind of stick with you, you know, because it's it's not just that it was I got to be around great music that day, but I got to see what it meant to somebody. Which, of course, begs a question which I find myself I like to ask, and you may or may not want to answer it. Mm. A car breaks down. Yeah. You know, coincidence or destiny? Oh, I'm not a fatalist. I'm really not. Uh-huh. Car breaks down because it threw a rod. Car breaks down because it got a flat tire. I, I, I don't. That's. So serendipity doesn't play much of a role in in this. Kind I of consider c- it dumb luck. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Steve's loss was my gain. However, you want to say it. Uh-huh. But no, uh, I don't think this meant to be kind of thing. Is I mean, it. it works for some people, but I'm, I'm really not like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah. And I'm not pushing you to be one or the other. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we do look at our lives, especially I think when we get to a certain age, mm-hmm. we begin to uh, take stock of it in a different way. And sometimes we yeah. look back and, my God, there seems to be a story going on here, a story well, that, you know, seems like it was just random when it was going on, but there's an arc to it. Yeah. There are certain opportunities that came up, certain doors that opened. Absolutely. And a, and a consistency to the sense of where the whole quest has taken us. Again, easily said, well, we just make that story up to match what happened. Yeah. Well, we, we remember as much of the facts as we can, and we fill in the blanks because the truth changes with time as, you, as memory changes, you know. But, you know, I often ask, I think one of the great attractions of old-time music uh, let's say, as apart from classical music, although I have talked to uh, classical musicians who really do feel there are moments when they're playing Bach or they're or Brahms where they feel that soul of Brahms is in 
in the room at the moment if they're really in that groove. I can understand that. And that's almost that quantum idea, you know, in terms of uh, mathematics and all that maybe time is, is truly relative and that we have a perception of linear time. But in old time music, it, it seems even more direct because you met this old timer mm -hmm. and you learned a tune from him. Like yeah. my case is Melvin Wine. Right. And I've been playing in a meadow at one o'clock in the morning with friends and playing one of Melvin's tunes. And mm -hmm. by God, I feel Melvin's there. I just feel it. I, I don't know how to explain it. And I knew Melvin, you know. Yeah. And it, yeah, that was, in fact, one of the hardest things I ever had to do musically was I, I was a judge at uh, the Clifftop Appalachian String Band Festival in Clifftop, West Virginia, years ago. And uh, I was judging the, con the fiddle contest. And it came into a dead heat between Melvin and, uh, and a great fiddler named Mike Bryant, who uh, lives uh, near Oak Ridge, Tennessee, who's more of our generation. And... Uh, and so then we had, it was a tiebreaker. And Melvin was, you know, he was probably 80 plus at that point. And, uh, and the tiebreaker came late at night and he was tired. And, uh, and Mike played and Melvin played and we had to judge them. And how do you judge, I mean, Mike, who is, I can't say enough about his fiddling. People don't, don't really know him. He's a great, great fiddler. And Melvin is an icon. And somebody who I learned a lot of my music from, going to Augusta Heritage and through Jerry Milnes and all those people, and uh, and Melvin didn't play his best because it was late, you know, and uh, and we ended up giving the the first prize to Mike, and that was really hard because just trying to judge the quality of the performance at that moment without thinking about any of the backstory didn't feel right. And I still don't feel right about it. <laughs> well, I think this brings up this question of fiddle contests, which is fascinating to me. I mean, I, was, I interviewed Mark O'Connor, and he tells really, at first, what sounds like a funny story. I mean, mm -hmm. it kind of struck me funny. But then as he really talked about it, I mean, he laughed too, but yeah. then it's where he came to Galax the first time as this young wonder kid right. who just had blown everybody away in every contest around the country. Mm -hmm. And the Moose Club took one look at him and said, we're not going to let you perform. You're, you're, you can't compete. And they, they forcibly really? ejected him from the grounds. Because he, they thought Had he, he played a, yeah. and won, uh -huh. they said there would be a riot. Huh. And, but the thing was, his mother was with him, and she had driven all the way, and she wasn't in good health, had driven yeah. from like Nashville. They had driven 500 miles to get there. Wow. And he had this very, very brief moment. He said he was there for about an hour or two as they went through this whole controversy until literally they were told to leave. And, uh, but he said the valley and the whole place is what inspired him in his Appalachian symphony he wrote about. Yeah. So, you know, complex story. What is, what is contest fiddling and how does it fit mm -hmm. in? And the classical world often has um, this, this sense of competition. And it may not be competition in the fiddle contest, but it's you know, you're the third row in the violin, but you can challenge the person in front of you at right. a certain point. And there is an audition process. And now with so many talented musicians, the auditions are getting very large. Huh. You know, where some people say, you know, when you were a good player, there were 20 people. Uh, auditioning for that spot in that symphony. Now there's 300. Wow. And they all can play. Hmm. You know, Why all, do you think that is? I think it's because of Suzuki and learning these these uh, instruments at such young ages. Yeah, I bet there's people that would say that it's because the, the expected level of quality is lower than it used to be. And I'm not offering that as my opinion. I don't yeah. believe that. No, I, I think that the technical ability is buying away better. And some people have said, you know, this is the one very positive thing about Chinese violins mm -hmm. is they're so inexpensive and the quality of the sound is really much better than the old German, you know, factory fiddles that were available. So these young people are playing on good instruments earlier and they're so. progressing fast. So back to fiddle contests, uh, you know, I've talked about the book, The Phantom Fiddler. Of course, uh, I think I've got two stories that deal with contests in some fundamental way. It's such a, an important part of the narrative. And I came to the music originally in Glenville, mm -hmm. and I never competed in that contest. <laughs> but they had the above 50 and below 50, which I always appreciated. 
You know, mm, so he didn't sure. maybe get into the Melvin Wine issue so right. much back in the day. The older people had their own kind of category. But uh, what's your thoughts of, of contests, playing in them? Good for the tradition, bad? They're good as community gatherings. They're inspirational. You know, they offer inspiration to people that are, you know, that are playing, that are learning to play. As far as the, the competition part of it, I, I did it. I did okay with it, but I never liked it that much. It was fun to win, you know. It was fun to get a ribbon, a couple of bucks. But uh, but mo I, didn't, I mostly went to those festivals to see other musicians, and I, I didn't go to the stage as much as a lot of other people did. But, did, uh, did you ever see it breed discord or envy? Those yeah, it it brought out you know the the kind of uglier side of of people sometimes to see people get competitive. Some people think that kind of competition is good, that it makes you better in a way. But it, uh, for me, the way I am, it never really was. I, I was always so all about just the music. It wasn't, it wasn't about being better than somebody else. And not that I don't have an ego, I do. I'm like anybody else. But, but, uh, but that, that never was my motivation. I just wanted to be a good fiddler. I just wanted to play the instrument well and satisfy myself. You know, and this was a good motivation. Yeah, and going going to the, the contests and the festivals. I mean, it it made me polish up a couple of tunes to make them as good as I thought they could be. Yeah, well, I play with my yeah. wife, and once yeah. while we'll play a certain tune, she'll say, "That's going to be our contest tune." <laughs> we'll work on that. That's one. great. That in, in 1976 would have been the third year I went to the Galax convention. So I'd been playing fiddle for three years at that point, which is not exactly a long history. And I played uh, Tommy Gerald's Backstep Cindy in the fiddle contest. I didn't win. I never won anything at Galax. But you got your money back. N worse. <laughs> I ended up on the LP. And there's a, you know they used to put out an LP of selected perform you know selected uh, contest performances every year, and I ended up on the 1976 Galax LP. And every once in a while, I have to put it on because I've been playing fiddle such a short time, and it's funny to to listen back in retrospect, you know, to what I what I was capable of doing and what I thought the music sounded like like what my, my early kind of rough hewn filters were for it. But I was playing all four strings at once and just totally mashing down on the instrument and just blasting. I didn't even know how to use a microphone at that point in my life. It's kind of funny now. <laughs> I think I've been in two contests, and uh, one contest I did, again, I, I felt I should. We, we were at Clifftop, and we'd been asked to come in, and we were doing a little performance or workshop. I can't remember exactly what was going on, and they have the contest there. And yeah. that's how, basically, Clifftop mostly is organized around the contest. That's kind of what makes yeah. it happen. So yeah, I felt sure. like, you know, you need to do your part. I had no expectations of winning anything. And we were the last group, my wife and I, we were the last to play. Hmm. And I played a version of Little Rose that I learned from Wilson Douglas. Okay. A very simple tune. Beautiful tune. A beautiful tune. It has a story about a, a, a man who basically living on the frontier who one day comes back from working out in the woods or forest, and he comes back, and his wife's gone. Rose. <laughs> and never knew what happened. Indians, a bear, nothing. Gone. And he wrote, apparently wrote this tune. I mean, that's the story I heard associated with I never heard that. It's yeah. incredible. And it has that melancholy feeling. Mm -hmm. So we played it. In a very simple way, and after we were done, got down off stage, and this woman came up, and she was a woman probably in her 60s, and came up, and she said, I knew Wilson Douglas, and I can't tell you how much I appreciated you playing wow. that. So that was, you know, That's really nice. within the context. That's it has meaning, yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. So we were, we were thrilled. We felt we got a ribbon there, you know. That's great. It was a good time. What is it about the fiddle that is really different? What is its nature? Well, I mean, just physically, the fiddle is the one of those three instruments that's not plucked. So it speaks a different way. Uh, like we were talking about earlier, it's more of a, a human voice kind of thing. I've made it into a rhythm instrument for myself. 
uh, in a lot of respects. But you know, the guitar and the banjo are much more uh, kind of equipped for making rhythm because every time the pick or your fingernail strikes the strings, it's a beat, you know. And uh, so they're they're just it's it's just different when you play a tune on old-time banjo, clawhammer-style banjo, you're, if you're playing it solo, and I'm primarily a solo musician, you have to make compromises on the melody in order to fit the rhythm and the chord movement in. You're trying to make a complete piece of music on one instrument. And, uh, and just depending on what kind of guitar style you play, if you're a finger-style player like I am, you know, you're doing the same thing although you might not be playing a fiddle tune. When you're playing old-time banjo, chances are you're playing, there's a good chance you're playing something that's played on the fiddle. What I've done with the fiddle, now that you're talking about it, is that I really have tried to do the same kind of thing in solo fiddling, where I cover the notes of a melody, but also can express chord movement and, and rhythmic kind of expression that underpins the melody, because some of the greatest fiddling that you'll hear is fiddling with with uh, where the bow is, you know, the movement of the bow and the rhythm that's expressed really drives the melody. The melodies are simple. They're all major, minor, mixolydian, dorian. They're, there's nothing, um, I, I might get clobbered for saying this, but there's nothing harmonically that complicated about it, beyond talking about intonation issues and things like that. But it's all about expression, and it's and and the rhythm that you create with the bow. You know, the bow is your drumstick on the fiddle. Is my opinion, and I teach it that way. That's what drives the melody. That's what drives the phrasing. That's what puts puts the the feeling of tension and release. You know, any kind of great music in any style. I think you you'd find has been my experience just listening that. Music, attention in music exists because of contrasts of something. And it could be a contrast of a melody going up and a melody coming down. Or it could be a contrast of volume or any two dis opposite things. It could be something rhythm, rhythmic versus something smooth or something loud versus uh, anything. And, and a good melody creates attention and then, if you're lucky, <laughs> a release, a resolution, you know. And I, I, in a jam session, I love to drive people crazy by playing the first half of the shave and a haircut and then stopping, you know. Bop, ba da ba. It's annoying, isn't it? Roger, Ra Roger <laughs> Rabbit, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, those kind of things, you know. Um, you know, we have most melodies return to a root scale and there's a reason for that you know i've talked to some pretty knowledgeable people about this whole violin business and mm. people who sell violins and trade in them and so forth and uh bill monocle is, mm. a, is just genius about all this and he says people are look for the right violin and they'll spend a lot of energy but they might find it and they might get content he's ah but the bow always looking for the best bow Good. talk about the bow the bow is Really annoying. <laughs> the bows, it's just, you know, I've got a bow that I like a lot. I know there's a better one out there. I haven't found it yet, you know. Bows, certain bows are good for certain things. I mean, you'll find that, that some musicians will own a couple of bows and, and, and each one serves a different purpose. I do a lot of bow bouncing, um, the part of the rhythmic thing that I do on the balance point of the bow. And my bow is great for that, but it's not so good for pulling a long note. What, what's the make of the bow? Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful bow. It's made by Elizabeth Schock. She's a, a Philly, Philadelphia maker, active now. I've, I've had it for probably 10 years. It's a great bow. I'm, I'm not slamming it in any way. But it does certain things really, really well and does some things okay. I've never played a bow, ever, that did everything okay. I played a violin that did everything okay. It was Rachel Barton Pine's Guarneri del Jesu. But that's a different story. <laughs> well, in fact, uh, Daryl Anger told a story about that. 
I loved, uh, Daryl gave me his take on the violin. I'd like to hear what, what he said to you about it on that violin. Well, we have it recorded. I think it's even on our website because yeah. I was so taken with the story. He basically said she had lent him her Guarneri mm-hmm. to play, and he said it was like up to that moment I'd been playing on a toy instrument. Hmm. And he said, my violin's no slouch. And he goes into what his violin, right. and he said, this is what it's about. This yeah. is what violin music is about. Like, I get it. And I thought when, when I was talking to him about it that he was going to say, you know, I'll never quite be as happy as with what I have. <laughs> and he said, no, it's not like that at all. He said, but now there's a template in my mind of what the whole range of possibilities are yeah. and has changed his playing. That's his take. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I got, I got to play that violin one time. <laughs> The first thing I did when Rachel handed it to me, I said, can I tune this to GDGD and sing with it? And she's like, yeah. Really? Yeah. So I sang Train on the Island with the Guarneri del Jesu. Do you have a recording of that at all? No, it was just a a party. It was at at Mark O'Connor's fiddle camp. Hmm. Every once a week, the faculty would get together and, uh, and just a visit. And Rachel always had some amazing instrument, and we'd kind of pass it around the room. I remember uh, Johnny Frigo, the great jazz guy from from Chicago, who was completely irreverent. Rachel, uh, she handed him the bow and and uh, the, the rather the fiddle and and the bow and the bow was a picot. And Johnny was he was just kind of off on a tangent and he was telling the stories, waving the violin around. He's tapping the bow on the table. Everybody was going crazy. <laughs> And then he played it, and of course it was beautiful, but, but uh, there was a kind of a stressful moment there. <laughs> well, I was talking about Mark O'Connor and about uh, Galax, and that was really at the end of this kind of longer story about his white violin, his white fiddle. Hmm. And I don't know if you've heard him talk about this fiddle. Yeah, sure. And he mentions one time at his camp where Rachel had given him, and he says in the story, so it must maybe she had different instruments, but had passed a strad around right. everyone. And then he says, just for the fun of it, I just gotten this white violin back from the Country Hall of Music or whatever. Yeah. And he said, so I passed it around. And he said, several people came up later and said, well, that Strad was all right, but it didn't hold a candle to it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so let's see. We'll finish up here. Let's you, let yeah. you get on. You're going to play a dance tonight? Yep. And uh, by the way, uh, uh, I used to perform for about a year and a half. I uh, I did a duo with Craig Johnson. Oh. And when you sang that song last night, I know that song, and I knew him singing it. And he was one of the funniest human beings I've ever known. He's brilliant. He was brilliant. He was brilliant. And, of course, I was doing more storytelling. We'd play some duets together. Mm -hmm. We even did a thing on the television in Washington, D.C. I don't know how we got on this show, but... So I would tell stories, and then we'd play a fiddle tune, and then he would sing these ballads. Mm-hmm. And he was the kind of guy, when he'd begin to sing, it just felt like you were listening to somebody from the 1800s. He yeah. just had this voice. His, his voice was otherworldly, and nobody sang like him. Right. So I was so glad to see you bring that, that song. Yeah, well, Craig and, was, you know, he was, uh, I lived in Washington, D.C. for years, and so I knew him through that whole scene. Yeah, you know, double Double-decker double string band, and... and uh, yeah. In fact, uh, the way I played Train on the Island is kind of modeled after how he did it on an old cassette that Double Decker did called Evolution Girl. And, uh, and yeah, He taught he, me several tunes. Uh, yeah, yeah. He spent a lot of time that, with Lotus Dickey. Yeah. And, that, and Lotus had a, a huge impact on Craig. Yeah, a great tune called Walk That Pretty Girl Home. Yeah. Real simple little mm-hmm. tune. But uh, when he used to talk about that one, uh, the, the song he wrote, he would say, you know, we're now so aware of what the environmental destruction was of this wholesale uh, timber industry right. that went up into the mountains. And he said, but you think about the courage and uh, the determination and the ingenuity of the men who did that work yeah. to pull these huge trees yeah. down and all that. And that's what that song's really about. Yeah. And I, I think that, that we need to keep that understanding because it's so easy to look back in the past and just demonize all that. No, you can't. What are you leaving as a legacy here? What, what's Them. <laughs> which is what? I feel honored to have hooked into a tradition 
that has gone from person to person to person over a long period of time. And what would I like for myself? I just, if, I, if somebody looks back, see what I did, I just want to be a link in a chain, you know, and just be somebody who found something that was important that they loved and studied it and learned it as best as possible and, and filtered it in my own, through my own head and passed it on to somebody else who could be moved by that. You know, I think the music is is bigger than all of us. I think it's humbling the same way the violin is bigger than us. And I remember teaching at Mark O'Connor camp the first year. I taught, for, taught at his camp for maybe 15 years. And uh, I came home uh, really kind of moved by the whole thing. And it was the first time I'd ever taught at a camp that encompassed a lot of different styles. And uh, I remember my, my wife Audrey said to me, um, she said, something happened to you. And I knew, I said, well, what do you think? She said, well, you used to love playing the fiddle. She said, now you seem to be in love with the violin. And she was right, you know, because I've, it, I just got this notion of what the instrument could do, and it can do way more than any one person can do with it. You find your little sliver of expression on this thing and, and mine it for all it's worth. But the violin, in all the different forms it comes in, and it ain't just the, the, the Italian kind of instrument that we play, it's, it's a gadolka, it's, it's an eagle in, in uh, Mongolian music. I mean, there's so many different forms of this instrument. The idea of dragging a bow, you know, the, the, the Chinese erhu, it's all the same thing. It, it's it, there's something it, violin represents part of the human condition in a way that makes sense and it just changes culturally the same way music changes from place to place but performs the same function for people I mean arguably that just makes it kind of the same it makes it the same thing for everybody but just spoken with a little bit different accent you know that's really cool so I just what do I want to leave behind some music I want somebody to look back at some point and say, hey, that guy did something cool. It's the guy who put the Bronx twist on it. <laughs> That's where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Before we say goodbye, let's listen to Bruce play and sing a portion of the song Green Grows the Laurel from his music CD, Contented Must Be. Thank you for listening to Roz and the Bow. 
an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project, to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And now a quote from the writer Roald Dahl. Those who don't believe in magic will never find it.